book of Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. You know, it was a number of years ago, uh, Brother Todd had mentioned to me about expository preaching. In other words, why don't you take up a book of the Bible and preach through it? He wasn't saying it, you know, in a critical way or uh, some kind of a hostile way, but just recommended that. And I don't know how many years ago that was taught. I'm going to say at least 10 or 12 years ago that he had said that. And it's not that I wasn't familiar with expository preaching, but it really clicked at that time in realizing how important it was. I don't know if we understand exactly what is expository preaching, uh, the word itself means to explain or to describe something. So an expository preaching would really have to do with um, beginning at the beginning of the book and going right through it till the end. And since we believe that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, you would think that God has a purpose in a book that would be for our profit. And the, most, the best way we can profit from any book of the Bible is by understanding what is the intent of the inspired author in communicating to the recipients of the letter or the book itself. So that's really the task of a reader of the Bible, and it's also the task of a preacher expositorily of the Bible. It's common use for us for us to preach this way, we preach not from the Bible, but through the Bible. And not that we don't preach from it, but I mean that we're preaching through it. To do it means we are examining each verse as it connects to the surrounding ones. It's like a building block, okay? Putting one block on top of another, top of another, top of another. So we can see the picture that's being formed here. Oftentimes, we can select a portion of scripture, pull it out of its context, and preach a wonderful sermon, but it really does not fit in with the theme of the book and with the flow of that passage of the scripture. So as someone said, a text without the context is a pretext. So it's important, therefore, that a church like ours, and all churches, I think, would be valued if they preach the word in that way expositorily. So our goal has been to try to go through now the book of Galatians, and we're up in chapter 4, although we've kind of been juggling around because of the holidays and sickness and being on vacation and things of that sort. But we're back to chapter 4, verse 1 of the book of Galatians. I'm reading in the ESV version. The first seven verses is what we're going to tackle in this message. And we really probably, for the sake of uh, the verses that we're going to read, I really need to, and you can just listen up because it's important that you see the connection here. In verse 23, Paul, uh, Paul writes here in chapter 3, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus ye are all the sons of God through faith. And I'm going to skip down now to verse 1 of chapter 4. I mean that the heir, and he's referring back to what he just said about them being kept in custody, you could say, until faith breaks through, or the promise of Abraham that he would be the father of many nations and 
He's writing to those who are heirs of the promise. Verse 1 again, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and manages until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons, or I like a better way of putting it, that we might receive the spirit of adoption. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave or a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I have something to say to you. This is actually a very wonderful portion of the book of Galatians that we have to understand the transition that was taking place. There are really two transitions that are referred to. Obviously, it has to do with what you were before to what you are now, before faith came and after faith came, and Paul's going to build on this. So in verses 1 to 3, he says that before the time appointed, we were like servants, though being future heirs. Some of you might have a dad or or older relative that has you in his will or you in his plans. And maybe you're going to be the trustee of a fund that's going to come your way. And even though it could be, let's say it's hundreds of thousands of dollars, and you're just a young child. My father had set aside money for my children um, that when they graduated from high school, they'd have money towards college. Unfortunately, by the time they graduated from college, the tuition had like quadrupled four times over. And it, uh, it helped a little bit, maybe to buy the books, but at least his thought was, going to set aside some money for the appointed time, and then they can inherit it. Or more likely, for many other cases, when uh, someone dies and they have money intended for the individual, that individual gets that money at the time when the death of the one who's leaving the money takes place. So before the time appointed, we were like servants, Paul says. Now, Paul is using himself along with others to apply to, like I say, two different things. I think in one case he's referring to the pre-New Testament period of time when Judaism was the accepted teaching and practice of God's people. No doubt, being circumcised, keeping the feast, holy days, Sabbath days, etc., was all very appropriate. appropriate. Dietary regulations... And on and on you could go with all of these restrictions or practices. When I was on vacation, I got talking with an individual, and every morning we would walk together and we would discuss the scriptures. And he was trying to influence me in saying that the Bible is one book, and therefore you cannot segregate one part from the other part. Therefore, if the Sabbath was being kept in the Old Testament, it must be kept in the New Testament. And I said... I agree that there's a continuity in the Bible between the old and the new. There is one book. There's a network 
between the two testaments that are very integrated. But there's also division that occurs. There's a discontinuity. So when Jesus says you don't put new wine into old bottles, or you don't put a new garment patch on an old piece of a garment, what is Jesus talking about? About not interweaving the two testaments as if there is some sort of a compatibility in understanding. There's an advancement that comes with the New Testament. We call that progressive revelation. So therefore, we would not be under those former types and shadows that the Jews would have been appropriately under because they were practicing what was going to be fulfilled ultimately in a greater way in the New Testament period. They were in the period of the shadows. Now we're in the period of the fulfillment of all of those types and shadows that took place. So that's one thing about the wording here. Before the time appointed, we were like servants. And if we go back again to chapter 3, it says before faith came, there's that before again and after, the before and after, before time appointed, chapter 1 to 3 and chapter 4, and then in the third chapter, 23 and 24, before faith came, we were under a guardian. Now what's a guardian? A guardian was actually a slave who was assigned to watch out for the student who would be walking to school, who would also be responsible for sort of teaching him like a tutor and also even sort of like a bodyguard in a way, somebody who would be overseeing the child, helping with schoolwork and things of that sort. And that's how the scriptures is categorizing those before this amazing event occurs. What is this after? We know the before seems to referring to a period of time when the people of God were in a state of custody where there was a, you could say, a restraint. It hadn't yet blossomed yet to, to the fullest degree. So what is this? It's the new order of eschatological salvation. What is that? The coming of faith is identical with the coming of Christ. And we'll get that in the next verse 4. When the fullness of time was come, the Lord Jesus was born of the woman. So the coming of faith is identical. Again, this is we're talking about time-wise here. is identical with the coming of Christ, who is the object of faith. It is the coming of Christ that makes possible the coming of faith, which is the decisive point in salvation history. Now, <clears throat> we understand that faith did pre-exist Jesus' coming. It tells us that in the book of Habakkuk. The just shall live by faith. By faith Abraham, by faith Moses, by, by faith Sarah, etc., etc. We see examples of faith all over in the Old Testament. But the way the book of Galatians here, in the end of chapter 3 and chapter 4, seems to say that a breakthrough now has occurred. Now faith has blossomed in a way that has been clarified that had not been to the same degree as it was in the Old. And why? It all goes to this, you could say, this watershed point. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son. That is the, you could say, the, the jumping point where now things are different. In the sense that now, it's, and, and this is wonderful that, that we've been born on this side of the cross. Because we have such a clearer presentation and understanding of the fullness of God of his, of his uh, standards, of his holiness, 
and especially of how justification by faith in Christ is what saves us. Not that it wasn't there in the old. We know that. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. We have the same faith that Abraham did, or David did, or any other Old Testament believer. It says in Hebrews 11, these all died in faith, not having seen the promises, but having seen them afar. What promises? The promises that you and I have, are now able to enjoy living on this side of the cross in the inspired writings by the Holy Spirit in the individuals that bring before us all these wonderful truths that we can now zoom in on and see how wonderful it is to have this saving faith, this knowledge that is crystallized in the New Testament period that was otherwise somewhat sublime, at least in, in, uh, in comparison. Jesus, for instance, says that Abraham rejoiced to see my day and saw it and was glad. Just think of what he saw versus what we see. Jesus says many righteous men would desire to hear the things that you hear and to see that you, the things that you see but have not seen them nor have they heard them. Again, Jesus is talking about the excellence of what he is bringing to the, into the world. God hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. Wow! God had sent prophets over and over again, the Jeremiah's, the Isaiah's, the Ezekiel's, the Elijah's and Elisha's and so on, but now the greatest of them all has come, the prophet of prophets, and everyone that will not hear his voice would be destroyed from among the people. The, the stakes are raised higher because the greater one has arrived into the world and has spoken to us in these last days. But he is under the guardians in management until the day set by the Father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So there's two things going on here. There was this Old Testament period that's classified as a place, as a time of custody, when there wasn't fullest freedom. And also, the other analogy is we individually, before we came to saving faith in Christ, were considered being captives. We were in bondage, like they have been set free, we are set free. So historically, redemptively, there's an opening of the gates, you could say, and to us individually, the gates have been opened for us, who were dead in trespasses and sins, but now by faith in Christ, we understand the gospel, and we can comprehend that which God intended for us to know. So when the fullness of time has come, God sends forth his Son, that's a difficult expression. What does that mean? God sent forth his son at that particular appointed time when the fullness of time was come. I don't know how many of you have ever seen, it's probably not so popular obviously nowadays, although I think it's coming back and I'm not recommending it by any means, but there is a line in the song Jesus Christ Superstar. He said, they say in the song, these lyric, this lyric, every time I look at you, I don't understand why you let the things you did get so out of hand. You'd have managed better if you had it planned. Now why'd you choose such a backward time in such a strange land? If you had come today, 
you could have reached a whole nation. Israel in 4 BC had no mass communication. Don't get me wrong. Remember that? Don't get me wrong. Well, that's what's being said by this, these people. If you had only come today. Now, there's something to that. Wouldn't that be something if he came today with mass media, with the internet, with, with the digital world that we're living in? What more of a profile he could display in, in seconds, broadcasted all around the world, visually and, and, and audibly as well. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son. Why did he come at that time? Why born in 4 B.C.? You're probably wondering and scratching your head too. And I don't say that I have the answer, but I'll, I'll suggest two reasons. One would be Alexander the Great had conquered the Mediterranean world. And in doing such, he Hellenized all of those various countries that had various languages, different languages, and different cultures. But the thing that united them the most was the language. And what language would that have been? Greek. Prior to this, everybody spoke their own language and hardly anybody spoke the language of somebody else. But after the conquering of Alexander the Great and all of his efforts that his whole team, you could say, uh, put in place, they, they, they caused all of the nations at that time which were focused in that part of the world, Greek, the Greek language. How convenient would that be to tell his disciples, Greek-speaking Jews, Peter and John and on and on, all the names that they get. They go out with a, the language of the Greek-speaking world that would be understandable by them. If Jesus had come in another, in another time, in another generation of time, there wouldn't have been that same connection that could have been had with the language. It would have been a barrier rather than something that they had to come. That's one thing. The other thing that took place, and this would even be closer to Jesus' birth, I should say that Alexander the Great's um, well, conquering took place in, in culturalizing the, the then world uh, with Hellenized, Hellenized ideas and culture and so on, came about the year 300 to 330 B.C. in that reign. And, of course, it took a while for it to spread uh, throughout and become a commonplace thing for the world then to become Hellenized and Greek-speaking at least. That's one thing. The second thing, like I said, closer to the birth of Christ would have been, and you can get this if you read anything like by F.F. F. Bruce on New Testament theology or uh, customs and so on of, of, of the background of the New Testament particularly, you discover that the roads had been built by Romans through areas that had never been trespassed by before. That made it so convenient for the early apostles, and we think of Paul because he's one of the, one of the best-known foreign missionaries, but he wasn't alone by any means. We see the team of people that, that worked with him and others that were sent out from other, from other local churches that went into the same areas in different parts of the world. They, too, were able to go into areas because of these, the road system that the Romans had put in place. If you want to look that up, you could, and it's fascinating. But that, to me, seems to be significant because what it's doing is it's setting now everything in place so that when the gospel is launched, they can reach these remote areas now and they also can speak in the language of the people so that there's no excuse for hearing. 
when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son. It tells us, too, that God's in the background of, of human history. We think sometimes that things just happen by chance and that this king or this emperor or, 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 or this monarch decides things of his own volition, whereas God really is intending everything that's taking place for a purpose, some things that are more recognizable than others, but he's in control of all of that. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law. This, it's indisputable that Jesus, was. we know that he was born of the Virgin Mary, that he was born in the tribe of, of Judah, that he was born in Bethlehem. We know that he was circumcised at eight days of age. We know that at 12 he's in the temple, he's with his family, as the custom would be that they would go to the temple from time to time for fulfilling religious requirements. And Jesus never uh, denied that. He didn't contradict any of that. He himself put himself in a place where he would be a law-abiding Jew. Of course, correctly, we know later he's criticized for being a Sabbath breaker when he obviously reverses it all on them. No, you're the ones that don't understand the rest that God is talking about. And you have abused it. You have added to the scriptures your own traditions, etc., etc. Born under the law. Jesus was a Jew, and his ministry was for the Jew. When he even sends out his, his disciples to go, he says, Go not in the way of the Gentiles, but go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. We might say, Jesus, why didn't you, why didn't you go to Rome? Why didn't you go to Corinth? Why didn't you go to Alexandria or Antioch or some of these major cities? Why didn't you knock on on Pilate's door or, or knock on Caesar's door and reveal yourself. But no, he chose to do it this way. Made of a woman, made under the law to redeem. That's what Christmas was all about, wasn't it? Christ's incarnation for what purpose? He took on him a body that was capable, capable of dying. He wasn't like Adam had sinned and he was on, on the road of death and was going to physically die. Not so with Jesus. He did no sin, he knew no sin, and in him was no sin. But yet he volunteered to die. And he was able to do that because he took upon himself a body. Now we know from, for instance, from the book of Hebrews that one of the reasons why he took on our humanity was so that he could have compassion on the ignorant, those that are out of the way, so that he could exercise his office as a merciful and faithful high priest, so that he could minister to you and I, so that he would know what you're going through. He can empathize with you. There's nothing that goes on in your life that he can't relate to because he was incarnate, because he came like us, apart from sin. Even though he was apart from sin, didn't mean that he wasn't a partaker of humanity. He was truly human. And he experienced everything that we experience. But the focus here in Galatians is what was the purpose for him taking on humanity? Born of the woman, under the law, to redeem, to redeem them who are under the law. Now that could be taken in a restrictive way 
to redeem them that were under the law. Do you think of yourself before your conversion as a Gentile as being under the law? Maybe not. But I think in the context here, I think in various passages from the book of Romans, it indicates that we were under the law. Maybe not directly like the Jew would have been with Mount Sinai and their, their ethnic history and that they would be direct descendants, you could say, of the Sinai covenant. And it was codified for them, but nevertheless, the law was on every human heart in the way. So we're all classified as lawbreakers. All have sinned and come short of the glory. We conclude that all are under sin. Why? Because the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. And after that faith has come, we are no longer under that tutorage. That is the law. <coughs> We're freed from the law. Happy condition. To work and toil the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. But greater news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. What a difference this gospel freedom has for us who were once in bondage under sin. As it says in Romans 6.14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. And that's what this goes on to say about what the redemption is all about. The Lord didn't just redeem us simply to remove our sins. It says in chapter 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. That's one aspect of Christ's death. There's no charges that can be put against us when we stand before the tribunal of God. And those Ten Commandments, if you will, are still in the background. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, be a false witness, and on and on. All those charges are dismissed because one redeemed us from the curse of the law by being a curse himself. He took our penalty in his own body on the tree. We cannot praise the Lord enough for that, brothers and sisters. Because no one could stand before God holy and without blame before him. But we are washed in the blood of the Lamb. We are redeemed. How I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We're the redeemed of the Lord. And we should say so. We should shout out, I'm the redeemed of the Lord. And because we're redeemed, there's a benefit, there's a, a package deal that comes with that, if you will. will. He's redeemed those who are under the law so that, what? We might receive adoption as sons. Here's that transformation and transfer from being a servant to a son. And by the way, this picture here is my granddaughter. Uh, was taken during the week. Uh, guess where that is? Who, who doesn't know that? It's not Hong Kong either. No, that's New York City, but apparently there's a new observatory there. If you ever want to go, I can let you find out where that is. But there's my little granddaughter, Isadora. She'll be two in, um, let's see, no, March. Get him, no, no, April. Yeah. I had five, three of them that were born within seven weeks, so I get confused. Well, anyway, that's her. Thinking of a child, a servant. Paul describes them as in an immature state, but now we've been matured. Now we've come into another category. So he redeemed us for the purpose that we might receive adoption. I've said this before, and it's something that we need to 
emblazoned in our minds and hearts that God does not have any natural children, but only adoptive children. You know, I don't know if anyone in this room, there, there are some in our church I know that are, have been adopted. And that's a great privilege, to be adopted. And that's the only way we could get into a relationship with God because we can't claim any natural rights to sonship or daughtership to God. No wonder Jesus says, you must be born again, born anew. Because the natural man, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So Christ's purpose in becoming a man was to redeem those who are under the law, which is mankind, and particularly his people, the appointed time for the appointed people, so that we could receive adoption as sons. And of course, sons could be sons and daughters. It's not, it's not relegated to the male gender, obviously. We know that. In verse 6 says, And because you are sons or children or daughters and sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. Because He redeemed us, He adopts us, He sends the Spirit into our hearts, and from us springs out the word, Our Father. That could not have been on your lips, rightfully, unless the Spirit of God was in you. And when you became born again, (coughs) you were able to be able to say, Holy Father, my Father who art in heaven, to be able to call God Abba, Father. Not just Father. Father can be kind of a sterile term. It's a, you could say, Father, Son. It, 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 It could be very stiff. Whereas the word Abba implies strongly of an intimacy there. We can call God not just Father, but a, a, a more dear, endearing term. We can call him Father. I mean, Abba. Abba. That's what that means. Daddy is how it could be translated. So not just calling God Father, but call him Daddy Father. <laughs> so you're no longer a slave or a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. What's Paul's point here? He's saying, you've got it all. It's yours. You've inherited it. The Redeemer has died for you. You possess the Holy Spirit. You're one of his children. It's not something that you have to attain. He's done it by his incarnation, his redemption at the cross, and now the sending of the Spirit into your hearts who believe on him so that you can have that gift of being able to call God your Father who art in heaven. This is an amazing transition. And Paul alludes to it (coughs) strongly, and this is probably the key verse in Galatians. What do you think the key verse in Galatians would be of all of the verses in Galatians? (coughs) Anybody out there want to guess at that? I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh... I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you don't know that verse, I implore you to memorize it because it is an awesome verse. It's a powerful verse. It is a, it is a verse that you can bank on and a verse that you need to remind yourself 
of who you are in Christ and the life that you're now living. The life that I now live in the flesh. This is the amazing transition Paul has talked about. From bondage to freedom. From being a servant to being a son. From being religious to becoming having a relationship. From religion to relationship. There's a big difference between the two, isn't there? The Jew would serve God religiously, piously, but as a servant, but as a son, as a daughter, as a child who's calling God Abba, Father, Daddy. There's a relationship there. That's That's what marks us out differently. We don't practice religion, but we have a natural, supernatural relationship with the Lord. The transition is from being legal to life. From being a student to being taught of God. From being in the old covenant to being in the new covenant. From having old wine and old bottles to have new wine and new bottles. To to not be undwelt but to be indwelt. To not be in the flesh but to be in the spirit. To not be in custody but to be in liberty. To not be me, but Christ in me. That is the book of Galatians. This is, in a a way, sort of a crescendo of the book to emphasize the transition from a servant or a slave to a son, to a, a, uh, we would think of it, in a biological union with a family member. Well, there's not obviously a biological one, but there is a divine partaking of his nature, as it says in Peter. We are made partakers of the divine nature. So you could say that God's nature is shared with us in the sense of being able to have communion with him. And it's a, it's something that, it's not a, uh, a militant, or military regiment lifestyle. It's not the letter of the law. It's the spirit that gives life. The Galatians were hooked on serving God and living for God because of their Judaizing teachers that were teaching them that they had to do this, they had to do that, so on and so forth, be circumcised and keep the Sabbath and the holy day, etc., etc., and that would be meritorious for them. That would be their salvation. <coughs> not so. Paul says you have missed the mark. You have missed the mark entirely. It's because Christ in the fullness of time came to redeem us so that we can receive the spirit of adoption and be able as now sons and not servants to be able to call God Abba Father. That's what I want to impact us all with. He's redeemed us. So we want to adore him. We want to praise him. So let's sing, Come Let Us Adore Him. As we begin, and our brother...